Yo, Hebrews, all math. It's all numbers. The ancient Jews used Hebrews in the numerical system. Eh? Each letter's a number. Like the Hebrew A, Aleph, it's one. B, Bet, it's two. You understand? But look at this. The numbers are interrelated. Like, take the Hebrew word for father. Av, Aleph, Bet. One, two, equals three. All right? Hebrew word for mother, aim, aleph, mem, one, forty, equals forty-one. Sum of three and forty-one, forty-four. All right? Now, Hebrew word for child, all right? Mother, father, child, yelled. That's ten, thirty, and four, forty-four. Torah is just a long string of numbers. Some say that it's a code sent to us from God. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's just kid stuff. Check this out, okay? The word for the Garden of Eden, Kedem. Numerical translation, 144. Now, the value of tree of knowledge, all right, in the garden, right? Eitz Hachayim, 233. 144, 233. Now, you can those take those numbers. numbers. You know, like the Fibonacci sequence? Fibonacci. Fibonacci is um, an Italian mathematician in the 13th century. If you divide 144 into 233, the result approaches um, theta. Theta? Theta. The Greek symbol for golden ratio, golden spiral. I never saw that before. That's like that series you find in nature? Like the face of a sunflower? Wherever the spirals. You see this math everywhere. You know I had to bring out that clip from the film High. Almost mandatory when our topic is mystic Judaism and the Kabbalah. Darren Aronofsky claims he's an atheist, but I can't think of a more Gnostic filmmaker beyond Terry Gilliam or David Lynch. There is what you say and what you express. And in this age of Hermes, the tricks abound. Reason is a serpent. And the simulation and its code seem flimsy as the center cannot hold. Turning, turning the widening gyre. So glad to be focusing on these Kabbalistic topics. Fuck you! Fuck you! Yeah, walk out! Asshole, fucking Kabbalah-reading motherfucker, get the fuck out of my house! Take it easy, Edward Norton character from American History X. Go chill on Netflix or meth until your racist ass is redeemed in the plot. In the meantime, happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Welcome to Aeon Gnostic Radio. Welcome to that dream of you, that distant ship smoke on the horizon. We don't take prisoners, but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything, but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been. Divided we stand, together we rise. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? As the saying goes, 
I got 99 problems and being trapped in a decaying body in a money-hungry society on a dying planet in a mysterious dimension might be one. What a Gnostic comment. And I'm sure you just love how positive the Gnostic attitude is. I just fucking kill myself. I've been so fucking depressed. Tony? Sorry, go back to bed. No, no, what? What now? It's all big nothing. What is? I've... Everything's black. At Aeon Bite, you come to solve that problem. It's almost like some mad mind is running the cosmos. Our very lives. Some unintelligent designer who is missing some faculty and made us partially into his demented image. I am the supreme being. I'm not entirely dim. Great, Miguel. You alleged pompous of Gnosis. How do we solve all this, quote, positive Gnostic logoria you keep throwing at us? How do we turn back these Gnostic times? I definitely suggest, with a history of provable case studies, you delve into mystic Judaism and Kabbalah. Especially when you go to that primordial, edgelord Jewish magic, or the early Kabbalists, who were very dualistic and intense, knew that a broken-down divinity was managing the multiverse. I am the architect. I created the Matrix. I've been waiting for you. Did you know that in these systems, the Sephiroth wasn't static? That it changed depending on the practitioner's vision? Very much like the Gnostic cosmology. That's individualistic, subversive shit we need today. To expose the mad creator deity and find out what happened to him. Let the pixie sing, where is his mind? Do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created here on earth? For these topics and more, we have the honor of being joined at the virtual Alexandria by my favorite current scholar. That is Dr. Justin Sledge. I highly suggest you check out his YouTube channel. Esoterica, a philosopher's stone repository of occultism, Kabbalah, Gnosticism, and yes, Esoterica. Justin's contributions to modern mysticism are already game-changing, and he's only just getting warmed up. The cosmic ballet goes on. Does anyone want to switch seats? As the Talmud says, God needs us more than we need Him. For we hold the keys to the restoration of the light sparks lost in the darkness of materiality and mere being. We are that place where the fallen angel meets the rising ape. The bridge between heaven and earth. With Hermes as our guide as he's always done. And as the Gnostic texts state, God lost his sanity when he lost his wisdom. Just as Zeus was never the same when Athena sprouted out of his head. God went crazy and became us. Or at least we are a warped expression of him 
to an extent. Maybe it's true. Maybe God threw the dice once to all. Maybe he let us all down. Getting God is Sophia solves not just one problem, but all 99. In Philip K. Dick's The Divine Invasion, there is a touching scene on a desolate dimension where God, while remembering who he really was before his mental trauma, finally meets the one who will restore him. To end, I'd like to read a bit from this scene, please. Time travel does not give one the opportunity to change oneself, but rather to eradicate oneself and allow something else to form in the wake of what once was. And in this is a sort of grace or madness. Tell me who you are, asked God. Zena said, I am the Torah. After a moment, Emmanuel said, Then I can do nothing regarding the universe without consulting you. And you can do nothing regarding the universe that is contrary to what I say, Zena said. As you yourself decided in the beginning when you created me. You made me alive. I am a living being that thinks. I am the plan of the universe, its blueprint. That is the way you intended it, and that is the way it is. Look at me. He looked at her and saw a young woman wearing a crown and sitting on a throne. Malkuth, he said, the lowest of the ten Sephiroth. And you are the eternal, infinite Ein Sof, Malkuth said, the first and highest of the Sephiroth of the Tree of Life. But you said that you are the Torah, Emmanuel said. In the Zohar, Malkuth said, the Torah is depicted as a beautiful maiden living alone, secluded in a great castle. Her secret lover comes to the castle to see her. But all he can do is wait futilely outside, hoping for a glimpse of her. Finally, she appears at the window, and he is able to catch sight of her, but only for an instant. Later on, she lingers at the window, and he is able, therefore, to speak with her. Yet still, she hides her face behind a veil. And her answers to his questions are evasive. Finally, after a long time, when her lover has become despairing that he will ever get to know her, she permits him to see her face at last. Emmanuel said, thus revealing to her lover all the secrets which she has up to now, throughout the long courtship, kept buried in her heart. I know the Zohar. You are right. I've often thought... That in the hereafter of our lives, when I owe no more to the future, that we may meet, you'll come to me and claim me yours. Know that I am your husband. So you know me now, Einsof, Malkuth said. Does it please you? It does not, he said, because although what you say is true, there is one more veil to be removed from your face. There is one more step. True, Malkuth, 
The lovely young woman seated on the throne, wearing a crown, said, But you will have to find it. I will, he said. I am so close now, only a step, one step away. You have guessed, she said, but you must do better than that. Guessing is not enough. You must know. How beautiful you are, Malkuth, he said. And of course you are here in the world and love the world. You are the Sephra that represents the earth. You are the womb containing everything. All the other Sephiroth that constitute the tree itself. Those other forces, nine of them, are generated by you. Even Kether, Malkuth said calmly, who is the highest. You are Diana, the fairy queen, he said. You are Pallas Athena, the spirit of righteous war. You are the spring queen. You are Hagia Sophia, holy wisdom. You are the Torah, which is the formula and the blueprint of the universe. You are Malkuth of the Kabbalah, the lowest of the ten Sephiroth of the Tree of Life. And you are my companion and friend, my guide. But what are you actually, under all the disguises? I know what you are and, he put his hand on hers, I am beginning to remember the fall when the Godhead was torn apart. Yes, she said, nodding. You are remembering back to that now, to the beginning. Do you have any memories before the mission, before the security went? Our job is not to remember. Remember. Do you remember her? I won't give any spoilers, but Sophia and her beloved knight continue in their journey to restore the universe with the help of many humans. In our world, let us do our interview with Justin Sledge so that we may assist God in finding his wisdom, his Malkuth. Asshole, fucking Kabbalah reading motherfucker, get the fuck out of my house! <sighs> we got a lot of work to do in this world, don't we, Edward Norton character? You've stolen my dreams away. All things change, lady. The dreams of youth are the regrets of maturity. Dreams are my speciality. Through dreams, I influence mankind. My dream is of eternity with you. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Justin Sledge. Justin, how are you doing, and thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm doing very well, Miguel. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. I'm really looking forward to uh, this conversation. Pleasure is all ours, and uh, as I mentioned, your YouTube channel is my favorite channel these days, a lot with the listeners. It's this wonderful intersection of high weirdness and all the topics we love here 
and uh, wonderful to uh, talk about your work. But first, we are also, as always, have the Moondog, Van Sachi. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Just a bit sad because now uh, my YouTube channel, which has all the cute cats and memes, is not your favorite anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as they start talking about the Nag Hammadi Library, I'll be right back, fans. Don't worry. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, but seriously, looking forward to a great show tonight. Looks like a lot of good red meat for us Gnostics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Justin, what, what, uh, what made you decide to start uh, your YouTube channel, Esoterica? It's, again, I love it because it's so eclectic. Uh, the topics are wonderful, but there's such a variety. You'll talk about Israel magic, and then the, you'll talk about the big ween, which we've addressed in the show. Then you'll go into John D. uh, how did you decide to come about with this project? Yeah, it was sort of a lingering idea for a while. Um, I, I did, uh, did a degree in Amsterdam where I studied uh, John Dee, and I, I studied there at, at the University of Amsterdam in their, uh, their Center for Hermetic Studies. And after that, I went on to get a PhD in philosophy. And um, subsequently, you know, I kind of got a normie job teaching philosophy. And unfortunately, normie jobs teaching philosophy <laughs> means, means you don't get to teach um esotericism uh they're not really interested uh surprise surprise and you know you doing a, a seminar on uh john d's monos hieroglyphica or you know, alchemy or, or or gnosticism um surprise surprise um and so uh in the aftermath of uh, spending several years in in the academy teaching you know basically sort of normal philosophy i suppose um, whatever normal philosophy is, um, <laughs> I, I decided that uh, I really wanted to, re to be teaching uh, Western esotericism, and I thought, you know, what would be the best avenue to do that? And uh, YouTube really come to, came to my mind, and I really talked to a lot of different people, and they said, yeah, this might be a really, might be a viable thing, and so I made, I think, seven videos to start the channel, and it's been, I, I launched the channel in March, and the basic idea was to provide scholarly academic resources to folks who wanted to have basically an undergraduate level understanding of topics in Western esotericism, largely from an academic point of view. And of course, what folks do with that information is obviously up to them. And I really wanted it to appeal to, you know, everyone from a Harry Potter fan to a academic skeptic to a practicing occultic, uh, occultist or Gnostic. And so the, the idea of the channel would be that it would be an accessible um, uh, tool for folks on a wide spectrum of, um, again, everywhere from straightforward academics to straightforward occultism. So that's the basic idea. Uh, I, I thought that, there, that the, a lot of the information online was pretty uneven. Sometimes it was really, really good, and sometimes it was not really good. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so providing uh, at least an academic resource for folks uh, was something I felt like I could do. I could fill a gap that way and be a useful contributing member of, uh, of, of the YouTube. And so that's, the, that's kind of the goal of the channel. I think you've done a great job and you've got a lot of subscribers starting so just this year. And the topics are just amazing. So for the audience, I highly recommend you check out Esoterica and uh enjoy a lot of the wonderful content there so uh justin we were talking email more or less about sort of the connection of judaism and gnosticism and there's a lot to unpack a lot of places to go mm -hmm. um 
And as always, as many have said, one of the central themes or interests of Gnosticism is that of theodicy. How did evil come into the world? And uh, how prevalent is it? How ontological it is? And um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, James McGrath. He did a paper called The Shared Origins of Monotheism, Gnosticism, and Evil. Mm-hmm. And he points out how the Mendeans in a lot of their texts have uh, pre-exilic terms and words. And he makes the case that before the exile, uh, the Mendeans were, you might connect them to this sort of group that might have broken away or been against the cult of Yahweh. And they might have been part of a more parallel tradition in Israel with Asherah and more organic, more Gnostic, if you would. And this parallel tradition kind of went again, parallel with the cult of Yahweh, which won over the day. And it's very similar to the work of Lynn Pignett and Clyde Prince in their book, When God Had a Wife, uh, Mm -hmm. how there was this sort of ancient, secret, uh, underground, uh, feminine worship, more shamanistic uh, Judaism. Have you heard of this or what are your thoughts? Or maybe just tell us the intersection of Judaism and sort of Gnostic thought. Yeah, of course, this is, um, I mean, this is maybe one of these, like, per, going to be one of these perennially difficult questions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just because we just, just because that we have so little text and so little archaeology to really give us a clear understanding of what of what's really going on, either in the period of where something like Asherah worship would have been going on prior to the, uh, prior to the exile in 586 BCE, but then, of course, in the period after the exile, where um, we have, of course, the, the, the folks who were in exile bringing back very likely some Zoroastrian religious traits, uh, I think that underwrites a great deal of what becomes apocalyptic Judaism or Enochic Judaism. Um, and I think to, to what degree that matrix also represents uh, some of the matrix out of which what we would call Gnosticism comes. So... Um, I think one of the things that I, I, when I teach this time period, the period after the exile, uh, but before the compilation of the the Mishnah and 200 of the Common Era, I I try to really ingrain in folks the idea that what we don't have there is Judaism. What we have there are Judaisms. There's a sea of Judaisms. There are several competing Judaisms. Even the idea that Judaism was localized around one temple in Jerusalem is not strictly speaking true. Uh, there was at least another temple operating in, in Alexandria that was founded by Onias III after he was exiled. So just what Judaism was isn't even that clear at this time. And so when people say something like, oh, it's a parallel or a para-Judaism, I'm like, they're all kind of para-Judaism. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. until the destruction of the temple and really uh, the rise of the rabbis. And, uh, and again, even the rise of the rabbis is a very slow arc. Uh, there was a rebellion against the rabbis as late as the, the, ninth, century, the ninth and 10th centuries with the Karaites. So, um, so I, I, think of, I think of that world as less of being sort of there being a Judaism and there being heretical flavors of that Judaism and ditto with the Christian world. And I think in the early period of its um, origination, that rather I think about it as a kind of a Jewish matrix uh, out of which there were lots of different currents, and, and some of those currents 
were certainly intersecting uh, with the kinds of religiosities, the kind of spiritualities, the kind of texts uh, that we would identify as Gnostic. And so we get a big mess, right? The big mess is, uh, you know, Gershom Scholem really believed that there was a kind of uh, a Jewish matrix out of which Gnosticism arose. Oh, yeah, he uh, did. Uh. Some, some of his, some of his uh, people like Gratz, the guy uh, in the generation prior to him, really thought of Judaism as uh, being infected with Gnosticism. He thought basically Gnosticism was a, basically a, a pagan aberration. Uh, and the Kabbalah was all just a pagan aberration that was uh, um, added on. Sholem disagreed with this, obviously. Um, yeah, the revenge of the myth. Isn't that what he called the Kabbalah? Gershon yeah. Or, or, <laughs> I love that term. Repressed, um, for, for Freudian terms. Um, and so I always, I, I, I'm often curious about this. Uh, and I think I talked about this in my episode on the Apocryphon of uh, John that I released last week on the channel, is that it's clear that Judaism and, and the texts that, that we now identify as comprising Gnosticism clearly are influencing one another. There, uh, there's a good bit of Hebrew and uh, Aramaic words, uh, the baptism liturgies that are found in books like the Book of Jew. Uh, these are clearly being coming out of a Jewish context, and yet the mythological structure is pretty deeply anti-Jewish, or anti-Judaic at least. Uh, the, obviously, the, the idea that Yalda Ba'oth uh, is a sort of a hideous, blind, idiot god um, responsible for, the physical, for this physical reality, which is basically a prism, um, and that that god is identified with the, the god of the Hebrew Bible is clearly a dig at Judaism. But what other peoples would have had access to that kind of information, aside from perhaps something like renegade Jews? Yeah, so and they were it, obsessed it, with it. They're obsessed with the Old Testament or the Torah, oh, the Genesis. I mean, absolutely. I mean, in fact, and one might even say that some of these texts, especially the Apocryphon of John, which I do think was, uh, for, for, reasons of, of, for reasons of manuscript history and distribution, I think it was very likely one of the most popular of these kinds of texts. Uh, and it's very clear that whoever that writer is not only knows the Hebrew Bible very well, but they know it very well in Hebrew, which to me speaks of something very unusual considering that the very likely origin of where that document's emerging is, I think, Alexandria. And even someone as educated as Philo, which would have, he would have, Philo would have been living a couple generations prior to the composition of the Apocryphon of John, if we put it between 100 and 185, um, Philo doesn't even know Aramaic or Hebrew, right? And he's one of the most educated Jews there. And so this is, inc again, incredibly unusual that you would have someone uh, basically able to pun on Hebrew and Aramaic words in their mind as they're composing this text. Um, and yet uh, to think that they weren't Jewish or emerging out of a Jewish context seems unusual. And yet uh, the reason why they know, re the reason to the ends to which they're doing this, uh, they're composing this, is basically to turn the, the Genesis creation story on, on its head at some level. So uh, a perplexing, a whole, a very perplexing matter indeed. Very perplexing. Yeah, what do you think about theories uh, like April DeConnick that you might have had disenfranchised Jews who were done with the Second Temple and they were in Alexandria and they started meeting uh, Egyptian priests. I always call them uh, the Tony Robbins of their times. They're more like life coaches. They're, hey, let me teach you these ancient uh, Egyptian mysteries. And, and these Jews began to uh, get this ancient magic and eventually evolved into the Gnostics. Yeah, it's, it's a, I think, uh, I it's think one idea. 
Yeah, I think Professor DeConnick's theory is an excellent theory. Um, of course, the trouble is we just don't have a lot of evidence for what, for what the actual story was. Um, uh, my general thinking goes something along that line as well, that we, we must be dealing with a, something like a um, educated group of Jewish people who, who are engaging in a high degree of syncretism, and that syncretism eventually gives them a kind of escape velocity out of, uh, of the Judaisms that existed, and that new kind of highly syncretized religiosity eventually becomes recognizable as, least, as, as at least one strain of the, of the kind of literature that we would think of as perhaps Sethian uh, or, or the kind of literature that we see coming out, that produce, the kind of literature we see in the Apocryphon of John. And I think that the Apocryphon of John also is itself a text that's composed of several different layers that have been stitched together, uh, some of which are, I think, pre-Christian, very likely pre-Christian. Uh, and also maybe not Jewish. In fact, the entire center of that story up until uh, from, the, from the, uh, the unveiling or the self-knowledge of, 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 the, uh, in, of the invisible God and the creation of the Barbello all the way up to the, the sort of cosmic fall, none of that needs to be Jewish at all. It's only later that they begin to sort of do this uh, riffing on the Hebrew Bible that indicates clearly, obviously, this person has a, a high degree of understanding of the Hebrew Bible. But yeah, Professor DeConnick's theory makes a lot of sense uh, to me. It's just that um, I wish we had more dots to connect. Yeah, and then and, uh, and speaking of the secret book of John, uh, you've got John Turner, uh, Blessed Be His Memory. He talks about how even the secret book of John, the first part might be Sethian. Then once you get into the Garden of Even and Yaldabaoth, this, is, these, this was actually Ophite literature, and they both got sort of fused in together. Yeah, and I, and I also think that, and I, I tend to agree with folks like Karen King and 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 Michael Williams that these a lot of these uh, these distinctions, Ophite, Sethian, uh, Valentinian's a bit of a different story because I think there actually was a lot more organization there. In fact, but a lot of these um, these distinctions get so blurred that uh, even the people, for instance, collecting the Nagamati Library it's really weird what they decide to put in there um, that we would gather it all under sort of one giant term Gnostic, but even the kind of literatures that populate that thing, everything from chunks from Plato to hermetic literature to stuff like that. It, it seems are the, you know, thunder, per, thunder, perfect mind, which doesn't seem like anything else that we know of anywhere from that time period. Um, so it, it's so difficult to pin these things down. And when you begin to try to do the, the uh, the higher criticism of deciding exactly where those stitches are, uh, things get to be uh, things get to be a mess. And what's interesting, at least in the history of Judaism, uh, or at least modern contemporary Judaism, when thinking about the relationship of Judaism to Gnosticism, so much of the groundwork that ultimately was laid around this phrase Jewish Gnosticism, which to my mind never occurs in any patristic writings, I would I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't die on that hill, but I, I don't think it occurs in Irenaeus or Hippolytus or any of the classic uh, heresiologists of the patristic period. I think that term actually originates primarily in 19th century Germany. And um, it, it's, it's interesting that, that the, a lot of the theorizing around this idea of so-called Jewish Gnosticism basically appeared, even with Gershom Scholem, even Gershom Scholem's writings appeared basically before the Nagamati Library was ever even published in, in English. Uh, or, or German for that matter. 
And so it's interesting that I, when I was thinking through some of the ideas about Jewish Gnosticism, I, you know, people will pick up Gershom Sholem's book, uh, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, and it's easy to forget that that book was written in 1941 and that Gershom Sholem basically did not have at his uh, fingertips uh, only a tiny fragment, a tiny fraction of the kind of literature that we have access to now in paperback on a Barnes & Noble bookshelf. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of this, a lot of the, the thinking about this is just um, somewhat anachronistic and, and things like this. And, of course, the situation only got more complicated when, when Nagamati was discovered and that uh, it was very clear that there was a Jewish current cutting right through all that. So, yeah. And of course, Sholem's theory, right, is that there is this sort of that basically what happens is that there is this Jewish, uh, there is this Jewish Gnosticism that uh, while it is suppressed in Christianity, it is not suppressed in Judaism and not really suppressed in Islam either. Um, and that it survives all the way into contemporary times in the form of Kabbalah. And Sholem makes this argument that has been picked apart, but is still interesting in many ways that uh, this sort of Gnostic thread um, it it's can be found all the way from the Merkava literature, all the way through, uh, all the way up to Hasidism in sublevel. So it's an interesting theory, although I think one that is now um, less popular. Justin, what about the idea of, again, back to theodicy uh, and how the, it seems there was a, a pivot where we can no longer blame the big guy for things. So we got to find out who is messing this universe up and giving the Greeks or the Romans and all these other tyrannical empires. So it seems that there's a pivot where it seems suddenly the angels are the bad guys, like in the book of Enoch or even in some of the Merkaba literature where you meet fierce, fiery angels. And of course, uh, then you get, and you could say it almost culminates, well, even in the, in the Old Testament, you've got the Prince of Persia and these angels that seem to rule over the country. And then suddenly you get, uh, it culminates with Paul and, uh, or Simon Magus, and his idea that these angels have really dropped the ball and they're mismanaging the universe. Can we say this is something that uh, came out of Judaism or was part of ancient Judaism or one of the Judaisms that was out there? Certainly the idea that there was a, 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 there was certainly a radical monotheism that can be detected and toward, for instance, toward the end of Isaiah, uh, what is sometimes referred to scholars as third Isaiah. And in that text, it's very clear that that, 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 writer has gone really hyper monotheistic, even having God enunciate, um, I am the, I am the light and the darkness. I am the good and the evil. And that's a really radical monotheism. And as you might imagine, um, that monotheism, that kind of radical monotheism is never going to be terribly popular because basically the same God that's causing you to have the good stuff in your life is also causing you to have all the bad right. things in your life. Um, this can set up a very adversarial relationship with God. And one may argue that Judaism has always had that kind of adversarial relationship. <laughs> I mean, is Israel literally means to wrestle with God, to fight with God. In fact, uh, sometimes in our liturgy, my partner who's a rabbi will translate the phrase Israel uh, uh, literally as the God wrestlers, which I, I always find to be a <laughs> poetic. It. I always like the idea of like, uh, you know, 1980s Macho Man, Randy Savage wrestling. <laughs> that's, my, that's the image that I, I have in my mind. Um, 
And I think what ends up happening is that, that image that's going to get softened uh, specifically when the when the Jews come in contact with Zoroastrianism and and uh, during the Babylonian exile. And it's at that point I think that you begin to get uh, this radical population of angels and demons. Uh, in fact, many of the names of some of these demons in the in the Babylonian Talmud uh, have Persian names. Uh, Asmodeus is a, is, a, is ultimately a Persian name, not a Hebrew one. Um, and I think what ends up happening is that you and you that they begin to import some degree of this dualism, some degree of this eschatology, some degree of the messianism, some degree of the angels and demons of the afterlife, uh, an idea that Judaism has never really completely set comfortably with uh, in terms of being dogmatic about one vision of the afterlife. Um, and I think that it's there that you began to get a shift in the theodicy and that theodicy that one begins to see that emerges is this Enochic uh, theodicy where basically uh, evil is no longer God's responsibility. Uh, rather, it's these uh, Nephilim or these fallen angels or these other kinds of demonic entities. Um, and it doesn't take long until that gets, I, I don't think it takes long until you see the shift from there to the idea that basically the, those kinds of entities are also in control of celestial objects. And it's, not, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump to you get something like the Archons at that point. Um, and again, one can begin to see that once you sort of start off at point A and you follow the logic, you go from B to C to D and all of a sudden, you know, one can imagine a situation where someone follows it to its logical extreme and now you're living in a, a prison existence where the physical world itself is a kind of, of, of prison. And I, I think it's a, it's a way of, it's a, it's a, a logical progression that one can imagine happening. Um, and you see this exact same this exact same theosodical kind of moves being repeated in Judaism, that uh, there'll be a kind of rubber band effect where um, Judaism will move in a hyper monotheistic way for a while, and it'll snap back, and all of a sudden uh, Jews become very fascinated with the origins of evil, and evil is given all these very elaborate um, theories, and then it snaps back again, it snaps back, and you can see this happening, especially in the Middle Ages. We can talk about some of the texts where you get a kind of, of um, Gnostic theodicy in some of these 13th century thinkers where the very structure of the emanation cycles that we typically associate with the things like the Zohar and other kinds of Jewish mysticism in the form of the Kabbalah, that you get this hyper emphasis on, on evil and demons. And there's this, uh, this other emanation about uh, this other left-hand side emanation text that emerges in the 13th century among the Cohen brothers, or at least Isaac Cohen. So, um, yeah, I think that like, again, looking at the way this goes, you can see how there's a transition here from the very fierce militant angels of the Merkava literature, which are frankly terrifying. Um, in fact, there's a great scene in the Talmud where these two rabbis are arguing with another, where one of them accuses the other of not giving them the right password. And he says, look, uh, to the, something to the effect of, look, if you would have given us the, the wrong password, that angel would have killed us, and this would all have been for nothing. And they're really oh, lambasting this guy, <laughs> which is a great, uh, a great text. And maybe it's not in the Talmud. I think it's in Hechelot Rabbati, actually. And going from their fierceness to also you know, transition eventually to the idea that they might be evil. So, um, again, I can see how these kinds of logical progressions could have, could have easily been made uh, from something like the, the Merkava literature to something like the, 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 something like the Archons. It seems like a, a reasonable kind of logical progression. Justin, what about the story, the 
I think, well, I would say famous story to me. It's famous because I love it. But it's the story of Elijah ben Abuya. I guess he's the garden cutter or whatever. But where he has that vision where Metatron is standing up in heaven. No, he's sitting down, sorry. Right. And nobody is allowed to sit down in heaven because only the most high is allowed to sit. Everybody's got to be worshiping him. I think of like Jamie Lannister sitting on the Iron Throne right. in that scene, waiting for Robert Baratheon to show up after he kills the Mad King. But So then does he ask, does this mean there's two powers in heaven? But I think then Metatron gets a, a lashing or something for, 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 uh, for sitting down. <laughs> yeah, this is this is of course the probably one of the most mysterious stories in the entire Babylonian Talmud, uh, Tractate Chagiga. Um, yeah, and I think the backstory to that is even is even some sense uh, just as fascinating, right? Where Metatron is not just an angel. Of course, whatever Metatron means is, is one of these strange angelic names that isn't Hebrew. It perhaps is Greek or something else. No one knows. But uh, Metatron himself is a transfigured human being. It's, it's Enoch. And, and the books of Enoch, right. Enoch is transformed into, into Metatron. And weirdly enough, in one of the books of Enoch, uh, this, uh, this uh, humorized Enoch is referred to as yod heh vav katan little Hashem, little God. Um, and, and, in, and in that Enochic literature, you have the idea that there is this kind of parallel uh, divine structure. You see that also will show back up in Kabbalah as well, uh, where you have the upper and lower kavods, the glories of God, and the lower kavod is the God that we know, and there's a hidden kavod, a hidden glory that no human being can know. And you get these sort of two layers of the Godhead that you see even in later medieval Jewish mysticism. But yeah, you have the story, right, where, um, where uh, Elisha ben Abuya, who is so reviled, of course, and the in the rabbinical literature, he's sort of the arch heretic, which again, you, think would, you would think that honor would go to someone like Jesus or Paul or someone, but it, it goes to Elisha. Um, and, uh, and of course he declares, right, there must be two powers in, in heaven and um, whatever he ends up mutilating the shoots. This is a weird phrase in Hebrew that he, he becomes an, an apostate. Exactly, exactly the nature of his apostasy is never clear, and there are all kinds of various stories in the Talmud about exactly the nature of his apostasy or what happens in the wake of his apostasy or what have you. And so, yeah, and then Metatron himself is, is whipped for having sit uh, on the, the throne of God. He's actually given fiery lashes, pulsa denura, which uh, you may know uh, pulsa denura is a modern Kabbalistic prayer that's actually prayed as a kind of Kabbalistic curse where. Um, one can pray. So you can't pray for anyone to die in Judaism. That's not allowed. But what you can pray for is for God to sort of do a, a like an IRS audit of their sins. And if God goes through and does an, an you can ask basically the angel of death to do an IRS audit of their sins. And if there's a sin worthy enough of being struck down, then God is in some sense obliged to uh, go and strike down this person and they're struck down with what is called pulsa denora, the, the fiery lashes. And, um, and this, this prayer, by the way, is still uttered. There are folks in the ultra-Orthodox community, the Haredi community, that when Ariel Sharon actually um, pulled out of the Gaza Strip, there were ultra-Orthodox Jews that prayed the pulsa denora prayer, and eventually Sharon had a stroke. And the Haredim, these, uh, these extremist uh, uh, Jews, claimed, yeah, it was because of us. Oh, we, did. <laughs> we, we did it. We, we, pray, we prayed the Pulsa Denora, 
And just as God whipped Metatron, uh, God whipped um, Ariel Sharon. So it's it. What's fascinating is that these these stories, these um, um, myths, and I really want to use that word in 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 the in the not. Loch Ness monster myth sense, but in the sense that these are muthoi, these are stories about the gods that um, I, re- I really want to reclaim that word. I think that word really matters and the, the way that it's kind of gotten used is just a false story. It's really, I think, a poor, it's a poor use of the word. But yeah. I think that the, these myths uh, have a continued relevance in, in 2020 and, you know, contemporary Israeli, Israeli politics where not only do they read the text to see Metatron being whipped by God for deceiving poor Elisha ben Abuya, um, but also uh, that's still being invoked now to punish politicians they don't like, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I always like this story, Justin, where a rabbi is uh, giving reading to his son before he goes to bed, and he reads him the flood story, and the son goes, Papa, did this story ever happen, the flood of Noah? And the rabbi goes, well, I don't know if it happened, but it's true. I think that's what we're looking for, myth. Yeah, something like, you know, I, I tell my students, uh, we should take things very seriously, even if we can't take them literally. You can do both. Um, you, can, you can take them seriously without taking them literally. So. And a quick question, uh, um, and I don't even know the answer to this, but in Judaism, how does a text become holy i mean obviously in christianity you've got the councils and this and that but in judaism there's a whole body of work from the zohar to the talmud the yeser yitzida who decides what's holy and not justin the communities do communities do um so yeah the judaism has a much more expanded sense of canon i think in many ways uh, at least official canon, uh, that is to say, texts that are authoritative, they can have a binding effect on, for instance, how legal decisions are made in Jewish law. And so Judaism has a, a much bigger canon, and of course, reaching all the way back to the Hebrew Bible, and then going really, in some ways, all the way up to texts written as, as late as the 19th century. Um, so depending on the sect of Judaism that you belong to. Uh, belong to. Um, and so this is a really interesting kind of... Um, uh, accretion process by which texts become holy and it has everything to do with with the community you're in so um and which is interesting the kabbalah is a great example of this where kabbalah was uh in some communities especially early on scorned it was really thought of as, as scandalous and um heresy and things like this but most people who've ever been to a uh synagogue have been to a synagogue on friday night and they've been to the service that is usually referred to as Kabbalat Shabbat, uh, that service welcoming in the Sabbath. That service was invented by 16th century Kabbalists. And um, no Jew in their right mind is ever going to think we're going to shelve Kabbalat Shabbat. It's not even conceivable. And so uh, these things become canon, so to speak, in a very organic way from community to community. But I would say that uh, the Zohar is basically canon, I think. Um, there are some communities that hold it with a little, a bit of skepticism. But I think most Orthodox communities hold it to be basically canon. Um, and yeah, the, a lot of these Kabbalistic texts are thought to be quite uh, holy. Um, uh, I know that, for instance, I wouldn't take a copy of the Zohar into a restroom or something like that. I wouldn't take a copy of the Sefer Yetzirah into a restroom. I would consider them to be sacred texts that are worthy of uh, Lahavdil, separating them from from what is unclean. So, 
Uh, it's a much more messy process, and it's you know there's no Jewish pope, thank God. Um, <laughs> can't even imagine what that would look like. Um, um, and so there's no Jewish pope, there are no Jewish councils, and it just doesn't work that way. It's all about communities setting for themselves uh, how how and how they're going to practice Judaism and what texts are going to inform that inform that practice. Which again also just shows you the power of the Kabbalah to be. Uh, to have had that influence that it basically will become universally accepted among basically all the various sects that, um, that it is, that it, it, it is that profound and it is that extraordinary uh, and beautiful and compelling and inspiring. Wonderful. So that means there could be future Jewish holy texts. No reason for that. No, there certainly will be. I, I absolutely yeah, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, yeah, I, I have every reason to believe again, like I said, that, for instance, in the Chabad Lubavitch movement, which is one of the largest uh, Orthodox uh, sects of Judaism, the one of their major texts is a text called the Tanya, and Tanya is studied right alongside the Bible, the Talmud, Zohar, uh, other thing, other things, uh, and, and that text was only composed in the, in the in the 18th century, and it's basically canonical at some level. So yeah, I have every reason to believe that there will be new texts that will emerge, and those texts will 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 be controversial and eventually they'll become holy writ. Yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, one thing most people also don't know is that in antiquity, when you needed, and this is something that scholars have told me when you needed magic, you didn't go to the temple of Hecate or Isis or Hermes. You went to the Jew down the road. I mean, uh, why is Ju- was Judaism so uh, so efficient or important or masterful with magic, folk magic and transcendental magic and all that? Well, there was a, a very long-standing. Well, let me back up. Religion in the ancient world typically got its authority via its antiquity. The idea basically was that if your religion was old, it must be true. Now we can quibble with that and wonder. You know, I always tell my students that, you know, tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. Um, so just because <laughs> things happened a long time ago doesn't make it any, any, you know, any more or less right. Um, but there was a, a current, and this is true of in the Roman period, where the Romans, of course, had a very negative attitude toward, uh, toward Judaism. They didn't really respect their religion. They thought it was a weird, aberrant religion with its one God, and you mutilate your sons, and they had it. You ever God- watch History of the World Part 1? Yeah. <laughs> the Jews are so poor, they have one God. <laughs> yeah, one God, yeah. And, and the Romans really thought things like that. The Romans, like, you know, they called it a super, they called Judaism a superstition. But they had to admit that Judaism was ancient, and therefore it had to be respected at some level. This is also part of the Roman beef with Christianity, was it? It was a new religion, and that wasn't a thing. They were like, no, like, we don't really buy your <laughs> religions can't be that new, sorry. Um, <laughs> And so uh, I think what ends up emerging is that the Jews had um, had earned a reputation for having this very ancient religion, and um, the name of their god was held with such reverence and such power that it, it basically underwent taboo substitution, which is to say that the Jews intentionally didn't say it. And I think also Hebrew had this, this this sort of exotic character, in the same way that Latin does now in movies, right? When you go see a movie about the occult, and they're all... <laughs> For whatever reason, chanting in Latin, you're like, why would it? Be Demons only know Latin. Only know Latin, Latin. <laughs> which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's also a funny thing, just as a side thing about John D. Is that one of my favorite scenes in the Enochian sessions is where um, 
uh, Edward Kelly is describing something. Uh, the angels are speaking in Latin uh, via Kelly to D, and uh, D has to keep correcting their Latin because <laughs> the Latin's not so good, um, or Kelly's Latin wasn't so good. One or the other. Um, but I always like that moment where, where D is correcting the angel's Latin. But I think Hebrew had the same kind of reputation at some level in the ancient world also, that it was sort of this ancient language held by these sort of uh, exotic, strange people from the East. Um, and they had this invisible God that kind of lived everywhere, uh, that, you know, that in some sense could sort of be anywhere. And, um, and again, when you look at a lot of these, uh, these, so, you know, these uh, Gnostic amulets that have survived and a lot of the spells from the Greek magical papyri, you see the name for the Israelite God over and over and over again in spells that have nothing to do with Judaism. Now, of course, they'll throw in other gods' names as well, because, I mean, when you're, you know, when the stakes are high, who's going to be real <laughs> picky about, you know, uh, if, I'm, if I'm trying to, you know, uh, get a, you know, really great wife, I might hedge my bets with my, with the various gods that I might Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't blame them. I don't blame them. I would do it. Um, but the ubiquity by which you see this Jewish God's name over and over and over again indicates to me that um, Judaism was associated with some degree of, of magic. And not only that, we have early, uh, really early on, Solomon is uh, thought of as having great antiquity. And we have uh, mentions of Solomon also in the Greek magical papyri as having some control over demons. We see the same thing actually in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a fragment, a relatively mutilated fragment of a psalm that seems to indicate Solomon having power over, over demons, and that, that, that mythology has its own. The Nag Hammadi Lari, the testimony of truth, and other yep. texts talk about him controlling yep. demons. Controlling demons, a very old trope that seems to have had legs, uh, maybe really early on, 3rd century BCE. Yeah, isn't there a thing where the legends say that he had the demons help build the temple? Yeah, that's yeah. This is in the Testament of Solomon, and even dates even prior to that. Yeah, that uh, there are all kinds of really complicated stories where Solomon um, binds all kinds of uh, demons in order to build the the temple. Uh, there's a, also a mythological creature called the Shamir that uh, Solomon also obtains in order to bind the temple for complicated reasons that we can go into if we want. Uh, but yeah, this idea goes back also that Solomon had a magical ring that could that could do this. Um, is a really early idea that we found pretty pretty early in Judaism. Uh, Josephus even mentions this, that Solomon could do this. So this idea was already current in antiquity, and it would be the case that, that Jews were associated with magic. Moses was thought of as a magician really early on. Of course, that's not hard to imagine when you look at the biblical text, that he has these kind of supernatural powers or at least a special relationship with God and things like this. So yeah, Judaism was tied up with magic pretty early on in the Greco-Roman world, and that idea would uh, would persist through the Middle Ages. Um, one can't really imagine, I think, sol- much of Solomonic magic as it developed through the Middle Ages without thinking about um, without thinking about the the Jewish connection to a lot of that literature. So much so that you know, I look at some of these Solomonic grimoires from the Middle Ages, and they're just you can tell it used to be Hebrew, but it's just gotten so corrupt that it's just sort of like Hebrew-like squiggles. Um, but even the squiggles were thought to basically have magical powers as being connected back to Hebrew. And of course, during the Renaissance as well, you have people like Dee, people like Reuchlin, people like Guillaume Postel, Agrippa, of course, uh, also uh, deeply believing that, that Hebrew had a kind of um, ontological metaphysical power because of its connection to the original revelation, uh, the theophany of, of God to uh, the Israelites and by extension, it, its entrance into Christianity. So, um, yeah, this idea is, is very, very ancient and it has, it's had, has legs. I think that's part of also why Kabbalah has become so popular among, 
among non-Jews. When I look at texts like the Sefer Zohar or other texts, I'm like, why in the world would any non-Jewish person go through <laughs> trouble to learn this damn thing? Um, but Kabbalah, Hermetic Kabbalah and other forms of Kabbalah remain in- incredibly popular among ceremonial magicians uh, to this day. Uh, I often have no idea why they would go through all the trouble of learning to read Hebrew when I, I, maybe you can accomplish the same things in other alphabets, but it seems to be effective um, for those practitioners. So all more power to them. It's a kind of magic as Queen's saying. So uh, <laughs> Vance, do you have a question for Justin? Yeah, Justin, uh, what kind of divination practices did they have the Jews before, you know, before Christian times? So we know that the the the, the Torah certainly uh, al- there are allowed and disallowed forms of divination. We have um, a couple of technical terms in the Hebrew Bible. Specifically, there's a long list of them in the Book of uh, Deuteronomy. A couple of times they mentioned in Exodus as well. We don't know really what they were. We know that we can look at the words themselves, Hebrew. As you guys, I'm sure, know, um, a lot of Hebrew nouns are almost always derived from verbs. And so often, if you know the verb, you can kind of figure out what the noun is, and you can kind of figure out what's going on. And, for instance, we do know of two places where there are forms of divination that it seemed to involve snakes. Um, we have a, oh. a verb where it says, do not snake. That's literally what it says in Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> and you're like, don't snake. Okay. Uh, and then it also says, don't cloud right? It, 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 literally the word, it's cloud there, anon. Um, and it's in a verbal form, of course, and it says, lo, don't do this cloud thing. So we're fairly confident that those were forms of divination that were practiced in ancient Israel by ancient Israelites. I always tell folks, you don't forbid what people aren't doing. Uh, ah, when I, exactly. when I, right. When I was driving, I used to drive from Jackson, Mississippi, where I'm from, to, to New Orleans, and I would go across the Pontchartrain Bridge, and halfway across the bridge, there's a big sign that says, please do not jump off bridge. And I thought, how many people have to jump off that bridge before they put that sign there? Um, the same thing I think is true in the Hebrew Bible. The, when, the, when there's a prohibition, that means that lots of Israelites were doing it. And so um, we do know of those types of divination that were definitely forbidden. There also seems to be divinations that seem to have involved uh, what we would now recognize as necromancy. Uh, appealing to the dead to learn the future. We have the very famous story of uh, the Baalat Ov at Endor, sometimes translated as the witch uh, of Endor, uh, where Saul goes in his desperation to contact her, or, well, to contact Samuel via her. And of course, you don't ever con- you don't ever talk to a prophet in regular times because prophets never give you good news. Like, <laughs> you know, like I always tell people, one of my professors in undergrad always made the joke that of all the people you never invite to a party, never invite a prophet. Um, <laughs> always doom and gloom with those people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, he summoned him from the dead, and it was doom and gloom then too, uh, literal doom at that point for poor Saul. So we have definitely forms of divination that were disallowed. There are also forms of divination that were allowed. And then, of course, the most famous form of divination that was allowed was the form of divination via the, what is called the Urim and the Thummim. Now, we don't know what those were. They seem to have been part of the apparatus of the uh, high priest's uh, get-up, specifically the, the, the breastplate of the high priest. Uh, the Talmud has all kinds of interesting stories where you could uh, that it's sort of a folded piece of metal and the, the, that that's the, one of those is the Urim and the Thummim goes in the middle. And then you ask it a question and the various uh, gems on the, 
on the breastplate on the breastplate light up to tell you the answer, which I always think of for a reason Darth Vader's breastplate on yeah. uh, that lighting. <laughs> but I, or I don't know for uh, or like a game show where they're like lighting up with various things or something like that. But um, <laughs> and you would somehow divine the answer. Other rabbis think that no, it was a yes. You could ask it a yes or no question, and it would light up and let you know either yes or no. Of course, to rewind, right? Saul actually tried to go to the Urim and the Thummim, and it didn't answer him. It just didn't work. And that's why he eventually turned and went to this uh, illicit form, this forbidden form of uh, necromancy. So it's clear that what the biblical writer is imagining is not a prohibition on divination ipso facto, right? They're not, they're not opposed to that. It's just that you have to go through correct avenues in order to accomplish this divination. And what that means, of course, for the writer of, of the Hebrew Bible, specifically the writer of Devarim, uh, Deuteronomy is that I, it's all about centralization in the the temple and centralization in Jerusalem, and of course uh, that text uh, Deuteronomy as we have it was very likely written under the administration of Josiah King Josiah, and Josiah uh, really wanted to lock down political and religious control of the area into centralizing that into Jerusalem. You can see archaeologically where other um, other shrines uh, even for the Israelite God were knocked down at that time, Tel Arad being the most famous. And we can see the centralization, not just to get rid of Asherah worship, but also to get rid of, uh, of, of uh, Israelite God worship in non-Jerusalemite contexts. And so you can see part of the centralization of legitimate divination uh, as part of that program, a part of a religious political program to really consolidate power under Josiah. Of course, Josiah met his own end um, at the hand of, uh, of the Egyptian Pharaoh, but it wasn't for lack of trying. So yeah, divination was certainly practiced and there were illicit and illicit forms of it. Um, and that continues to this day. There are illicit and illicit forms of divination still practiced in the Jewish world. Oh, wow. Uh, before it was the priesthood, right? The priest had to be the intercessor, um, between, you know, Yahweh and, and the people, but uh, how is it done now? What, what are the proper avenues now? So this is a controversial question. Uh, what are the proper avenues? Uh, some rabbis are going to tell you there are no proper avenues, that it's all what is called avodah zarah. It's all, uh, I don't know how to translate, foreign worship, paganism. Although I don't want to translate it as paganism. I think that's an unfair translation. Foreign worship. It's, it's just not what Jews do. Jews don't do that. Um, it's what other people do or something like that. But, um, but, uh, there are forms of divination that still exist in the Jewish world where um, where things like uh, egg whites will be sort of put into a glass and stared into as a kind of uh, scrying mirror. There are texts in which um, angels can be consulted for various kinds of uh, uh, learning various kinds of things that if you need a certain kind of thing accomplished, then you can contact with an angel and the angel can let you know these things. Um, all the kinds of divination are still practiced. Um, there's still sleeping divination that's practiced where you might put a holy book under your pillow uh, or you uh, might uh, sleep uh, on the grave of a, uh, a tzaddik, of a righteous person, and that the righteous, the soul of that righteous person will uh, contact you during your sleep. And uh, Wow, that is so cool. I love it. Yeah, so this stuff still goes on. It is yeah, very underground. I love it. Uh, it is, yeah, I would say it's very, you're not going to go to your local temple Israel and, uh, the, the, <laughs> the local reform rabbi tell you to go sleep on a grave. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, so I didn't that, think uh, so. 
Yeah, it's it's not a mainstream practice, but uh, it, it does certainly go on in the in the in the ultra orthodox world. Although getting into that world can be difficult because it's a very closed off world. But these practices of uh, what is called ibor, where the where the the soul of a righteous person is actually possesses you to give you uh, what is called chizuk, strength or power, and that power allows you to do various kinds of uh, spiritually important things, or even just avoid temptation. If you're going to travel and you know that your, I don't know, ex-girlfriend's there or something, and you don't want to get tempted by her, you may get some extra power from a from a righteous rabbi or something. <laughs> yeah, you're going to a, a Greek topless beach or something, and you yeah, want you know, to keep not that many, not many, what, cool. yeah, not that many ultra orthodox people would go there. But, but yeah, <laughs> these practices do they they do happen? They have historically happened. Uh, we know that Chaim Vital did it. We know that Itzhak Luria prescribed it. Uh, we know that um, there are various amulets, and uh, I have books downstairs of various amulets. In fact, one of my favorite amulets is a um, there's a medieval book of magic called the Sefer Raziel Hamalach, which is um, a book of yeah, medieval angel magic and astrology. Um, and what's interesting is the book itself um, is thought to be magical. Just having the book is thought to have magical powers. And you can actually buy the entire book on a microfilm, on a single piece of microfilm. And because the book is conceivably readable with a microfilm reader, it's considered to be a viable amulet. And therefore the entire, the, the piece oh, of microfilm cool. will carry around with them. I have the entire Zohar like that. And it's thought that the having, just having the microfilm of the Zohar is considered to also have magical powers. So I, I've, I've collected these amulets throughout the years that are thought to have various kinds of magical powers. Safer Raziel specifically is, is supposed to protect your uh, house from fire. And considering how many books I have, um, <laughs> how about a PDF of Zohar on your phone? Does that count? <laughs> it's a good question. I, 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 think the, I, I, I think that the idea, at least what I've been told, is that it's the book that has the power. And I wonder that if it, if it's because it's conceivably openable and you can read it on your phone, perhaps it will have the right. same power. I even have a little bitty tiny copy that's you know about the size of uh, I don't know a quarter. And it's, it's a, certainly a little book. And the idea is that because you can read it with a magnifying glass, it still has its magical powers. I have it, um, I think, in my car. I carry it in my car. Um, Dostoevsky once said that he was much too intelligent to be superstitious, but he was superstitious just the same. So, <laughs> <laughs> not going to hurt. Where your basis. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And uh, from the Nag Hammadi Library or any so-called Gnostic text, do you have any favorite ones, Justin? I would say that I, text, you know, I would say that the text that I come back to and I've come back to more often than not is probably the, the Thunder Perfect Mind text. This is a, a text that I find to be just, um, there's something about it that's hypnotic and powerful. And especially if you uh, have some, uh, especially if you have some competency with Coptic, the um, the translation, at least the sort of the classic translations we, that you can get in the big complete Marvin, uh, the, the Meyer translation and uh, the Robinson translation, which I think of those two folks that translated Thunder, um, unfortunately don't really do really great job with the gender. And there's all kinds of interesting things about that go on with the, 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 the gender swapping that's going yeah. on. Altasig's translation. Yeah. yeah. Very gender bending text. Yeah. It's a very gender bending text and it's and it's performative. It was almost it was almost certainly meant to be performing. Uh, the text invokes the reader, right? To like listen to me. And it's very clear that this was meant to be a performative text. 
And it takes a couple of different genres of ancient literature of this literature of, you know, where gods just sort of announce how great they are. And, you know, I'm pretty familiar with that with the Hebrew Bible and other kinds of texts where God just sort of God show up and I'm this and I can do this and I'm this and I'm that. And thunder really subverts so much of that. Uh, it uses it and it subverts it. Um, it's also clearly like connected perhaps and in, in with Jewish literature, with some of the literature from the Proverbs where, uh, where chokhmah, where uh, wisdom is uh, personified, also in the alphabet of, of, of Ben Sarach, where something else is happening there. And at the same time, thunder is completely in place in Nagamadi and also completely out of place. We could have easily found it somewhere else and it, it would have been just as, as, as amazing. And also we see echoes of it in, uh, or perhaps echoes of it uh, in the Ginza Rabbah of the Mandeans and um, even as far afield as something like the Upanishads, there are sections of the Upanishads that, that read like thunder or rather there are sections of thunder that read like the Upanishads if we want to get it historically correct. But that text has always struck me as fascinating. And of course the, the connection, as we mentioned, I think in the, uh, in our email correspondence uh, about Gandhi yeah. with this so-called being the, the daughter of fortitude. Oh, yeah. um, and it's hard to ignore that, um, the homologies, how, how homologous those texts, um, those texts are. So thunder has always struck me as, as hypnotizing and beautiful. So much so, by the way, that I've, I've copied it. I copied the entire text by hand on papyrus and Coptic. Wow. Uh, kind of, cool. Kind of meditation. Wow. So, yeah, I, I do calligraphy as a kind of spiritual practice. And one of the texts that I've copied over the years is, um, is, uh, is thunder because I find that, the, the repetitive quality of it makes it, you know, the constant, you know, I am, I am not, uh, that repetitive quality when you're hearing it inside your mind, uh, it has this kind of mantra like meditative, uh, quality. So yeah, thunder, uh, uh, has always appealed to me and, and still appeals to me. And, and it's a text that uh, I learned, I learned to read Coptic working on it. And, uh, as much as I can say, I can still read Coptic. It's pretty embarrassing when I, crack it open how little I can read these days, but it's a text that is always, um, that's always spoke to me. Do you think it's actually Kabbalistic um, tied in with the ancient Kabbalah? I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, what typically I reserve the term Kabbalah just for the, the, the literature around the Sefer Zohar and the time just a century before that in the middle ages, but it's hard it's hard not to see at least insofar as the speaker is, if, if we can think that the speaker is Barbello or the speaker is Sophia, which there's lots of reasons to believe that it could be. And there's lots of reasons to think that it has nothing to do with that. Um, I, 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 I don't think I have a dog in the fight, all things told, but the idea of this personification of wisdom and this, uh, that kind of uh, wisdom as a feminine entity speaking where the Israelites or the Jews of the time are on the one hand allowing wisdom to have a kind of quasi-divine feminine voice. And of course that really gets worked into high gear in the, with the Shekhinah, the feminine presence of God and the Zohar and in the Sefer Bahir uh, much later. And also the, the male hyper-masculine deity of the Israelite religion where one can imagine what would, if those entities were sort of speaking in a kind of chorus what kind of shouting back and forth might they have? One can imagine a kind of weird divine theater like that, but 
again, it, it, the text is so obscure and the text is so, um, it manages to hide itself so well and say so much and say so little at the same time. And I guess that's part of what makes the text so uh, profoundly um, alluring and seductive even. And um, yeah, and also one other thing, right? Is that one of the things that's also true about the text is how violent the text is. I think that there are two dozen cases where the, the, the speaker is, is, is subject to violence and often it will contrast. uh, I was subject to this kind of violence, but I'm also the one who does the violence. But if you, if you count those, I think it's about two dozen times where you get those kinds of parallelisms but in 12 out of the two dozen, uh, so basically half, there is no other side. It's just that they're a victim of violence. And again, it, it, when I look at literature like the Song of Psalms, one of the things that people don't realize about the Song of Psalms is a lot of the back and forth, especially from the woman's point of view, we think of that as kind of a beautiful love story at some level. But there's a whole scene where the, the, the female speaker in, that, in the Song of Psalms is violently accosted. Uh, in the streets of what I guess what was Jerusalem, and when I read those sections, it, it it reminds me of 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 thunder. And of course, again, to what degree can I say that these connections are 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 typological, or are they historical? Is there a historical causation here? Or are they just sort of typological stories about violence? I I, I don't know. I um, I would I would be the kind of thing I I wouldn't want to. Uh, if I were a betting man, I don't think I'd put much money on it, but. At least when I read it, those are the kinds of images that, that come to mind. They're so, uh, so intensely powerful for me. We are at the end. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for keeping us company in this wonderful journey. Well, it's been very interesting, fascinating. And Justin, I uh, really appreciate you coming on Aeon Bite. It's been a great conversation. Real quick, I'll have this on the show notes, but where can people find out more about your work? Yeah, people can find me uh, online. I have a website. Uh, it's just justin dot, uh, justinsledge.com. You can find me there and learn a little bit more about my research and a little bit more about me personally. But uh, the big place is, of course, my YouTube channel, Esoterica, which you, if you just go to YouTube and, and type in Esoterica, you'll, it should come up there pretty high. And we put out content just about uh, every week, every Friday. I try to get up something. And uh, we, we cover a wide range of topics in Western esotericism, and I'm very, always very open to uh, folks leaving recommendations. And we cover Gnosticism, Kabbalah, alchemy, uh, magic, uh, a wide range of things. So folks are interested in those topics. Um, feel free to check us out. Yes, audience, definitely check it out. Uh, a lot of good stuff, a lot of very useful stuff, and uh, yeah, a great channel. But uh, Justin, uh, thank you very much for coming on AM Bide. We appreciate your time, and it's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It's been a real pleasure, and um, just so happy these conversations are happening. It's just Amen. Uh, we li- we're li- really living in a golden age of these kinds of conversations, and it just makes me really excited and humbled to be part of them. So thank you. I agree. Thank you. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. The first part of our interview with Dr. Justin Sledge. Let's continue with the Tikkun Olam. In our second part, we'll get deep into the Kabbalah, including the biographies and contributions of exemplars like Isaac Luria and Shabbat Zevi. 
This will move to insights on liberty Gnosticism and Frankian Judaism. Justin will address the idea of the Jews ruling the world and how he's had to deal with it and grant us some Kabbalistic theme movies. Very cool. And much more. So become an AB Prime member of Patreon or Patreon for the full Sephiroth. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic and Hermetic content, or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership includes full access to more than 14 years of quality interviews. It includes an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, where many past guests hang out there, and I'm always there to answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. Don't forget I'm offering voiceover services if you need some audio awesomeness for your projects. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wishlist, as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Finding Hermes is live, and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include spiritual and mental exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics. And a whole lot of stimulating conversation on many heretical topics in a Q&A. I've already given lessons on Gnostic chants, vowel magic, astral ascents, mystical Eucharist, entheogens, and much more. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the Virtual Alexandria. You can do so many wonders, I just know it, I just know it including restoring God's sanity. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.